let's be honest, most of us do this. See something interesting on our newsfeed, give the headline a quick scan, read a couple of parts, skip to the comments, and then move on pretty quickly. In this podcast series from the University of Aberdeen, I want to explore the stories making the news in more depth and ask the people involved what it means in a wider context. And I want you to come with me. I'm Laura Grant, and this is Into the Headlines. Episode 1, The Irish Giant. Today I'm joined by Dr Thomas Munzer, Senior Lecturer at the University of Aberdeen School of Law, and Neil Curtis, Head of Museums and Special Collections at the University. Welcome both. Glad to be with you. I'm going to start with you, Thomas, um, as a, a campaign you've been involved in for a good many years has been in the headlines recently, and that's the story of Charles Byrne, or the Irish Giant, as he called himself. Born in 1761, uh, due to a growth disorder, he rose both in stature, reaching a height of seven foot seven inches, and in fame, before dying at the age of just 22. And since then, his remains have been on display in the Hunterian Museum in London. That is until quite recently, when they were removed in response to the efforts of campaigners such as yourself. Can you tell us a little bit more about who Charles Byrne was and how his skeleton ended up on display to the public in the first place? Yes, as you pointed out, Laura, Charles Byrne was an 18th century celebrity Irish giant. So he was born quite a long time ago and he had what we would understand to be uh, a medical ailment with his pituitary gland, which sits at the base of the brain and helps regulate our height. So he ended up with the condition gigantism and he shot up to this prodigious height. And as you pointed out, he was around seven foot seven inches based on skeletal studies, but he worked as a showman and exhibited himself as a human curiosity. And as part of that, we know from old advertisements and accounts of Charles that he exaggerated his height somewhat. So he was considered sometimes to be eight foot four or eight foot. And it was a, a time when the national height average was a lot lower than it is today. And from a young age, as his height began to increase, he eventually hit on a notion to go off in seek of fame and fortune and adventure with a friend of his called Joe Vance. He left his home, which is in what is present day Northern Ireland or Ireland back then. He goes to Scotland first and kind of works his way down the country to London, exhibiting himself as a human curiosity. And he soon becomes a celebrity. The newspapers are fascinated by him. The public are paying coin to go and see him. And he builds up quite a substantial amount of money. But tragically, one night, he's having a few pints in a pub in London called the Black Horse in the Charing Cross area. And poor Charles is pickpocketed. And he had his money compressed into, into a sort of bank note or bond note uh, back then. And of course, they didn't have bank machines and all the things that we're used to today. That was stolen, sadly. And he lost his worldly fortune, basically, in that theft. And he went into a depression, uh, went to bed. And a couple of months later, he was dead. So the, those difficult circumstances will have exacerbated that. And also his low immunity and his medical condition will have played a part. And there are some accounts suggesting he might have attracted tuberculosis as well. And what happened after his death? When he passed away in 1783, it was well known that the surgical community were keen to get a hold of his corpse to study it and dissect it. Charles was terrified of this. 
So he said to his pals shortly before he died, look, weigh my coffin down and bury it at sea, because even if he's buried in the ground, resurrectionists or grave diggers could have easily dug the body up and sold it to the surgical community on the black market, which was quite rife at the time, this black market in cadavers. So Charles Powell's arranged for the funeral. He was taken to Margate on the English coast, so it was thought, and buried there. But that wasn't quite what happened. As the funeral train stopped for a night uh, to rest up and have a bite to eat and whatnot, a crooked person in their party who was in the pay of eminent surgeon John Hunter was able to secretly switch the body for dead weight. So when the burial took place, and it's reported on in the old newspapers of the day, Charles' remains were not in that coffin. They were transported to Holborn secretly in a hay cart, and they arrived at the home of John Hunter. And Hunter reduced the corpse to its skeleton, and then the famous surgeon packed the skeleton away. And four years later, he revealed this new exhibit in his anatomical collection. And when we fast forward to today, we have a memorial museum to John Hunter in the Royal College of Surgeons in London. And Charles Burns remains have been a centerpiece of that memorial museum as part of his specimen collection. So there's a very rich um, kind of story behind this. It's um it's a rich story, but it's also quite a, a sad story. He 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 didn't want to be to be on display. How did your interest in it come about? I entirely agree. It's a very sad story. Um, I was a law student some years ago, sleeping through, to be frank, a rather tedious class on property law, and I had to go write an essay. And I noticed in a source when I was reading a particular source for this course, mention of words to this effect a one-time remembered celebrity Irish giant whose remains were stolen on the way to its funeral or something like that. And I was studying in Northern Ireland. I am Northern Irish. And it just caught my interest. This footnote was querying some technical legal issues related to Charles Byrne. And I got fascinated by Byrne and his story. And as you know, if you want to learn more about someone interesting from history, you tend to lift down a biography. And there was no biography on Charles Byrne. He'd been a great celebrity in his day, but he was largely now forgotten. So I started to piece together his life a little bit. I became more and more interested. And I gradually wrote my research up in a couple of papers, one in 2013 called The Grave Situation and a couple of others. And I just became fascinated by the man and his life. And I could see very clearly that a, a great wrong had been done his memory and that it was inappropriate for his remains to be on display in the Memorial Museum. So that galvanized my fascination and on I went from there. Yeah, so the the, the campaign was born and it's obviously had um, support from lots of different quarters, including Wolf Hall author Dame Hilary Mantel, who also wrote The Giant O'Brien, a fictionalised account which draws and burns his story. What What is it that's the, the key issue at the heart of the calls requesting that the museum take the remains off public display? What's at the core of this? The issue at the core is the tragic treatment of Burns posthumous memory we maybe can't necessarily say the treatment of Byrne because he has passed away but his posthumous memory respect for the man that was and so forth by putting his skeleton on display as a curiosity object in the memorial museum to the man who was responsible for um, contributing to the the pain and terror in which he died and then the mistreatment of the remains subsequently there are many good things that could be said about John Hunter. He was a very eminent surgeon, but this is not one of them. It's a stain on his record as a historical figure as well. 
And this is still relevant to people today, isn't it? When it comes to burial, in some sense, we're not just dealing with some story from a couple of hundred years ago that may sound interesting and tragic, but isn't relevant to us. There's a personal relevance to all of us. Burial wishes are not legally binding under UK law, and they typically haven't really needed to be insofar as the living tend to respect the wishes of the dead. So you and I and all of us, we are relying on precisely what Charles Byrne was relying on when it comes to burial and our remains. Are people going to respect our wishes and treat our posthumous memory and our remains respectfully? Or are people just going to overlook those and treat them in ways, especially in this case, that go against the grain of our commonly shared morality? So I think I'm right in saying that um, this was the museum's probably most famous exhibit and no doubt thousands of people will have viewed it over the years. Some I would imagine um, out of a sense of the macabre, but given that this was a collection of anatomical specimens linked to the Royal College of Surgeons, for many others, there will have been a genuine interest in science and the human body. Where for you is the line between education and public interest when it comes to collections like this? Education is generally very important, of course, when it comes to museums and certainly public interest is, is absolutely key. But in the case of this narrow exhibit, again, we contextualize the exhibition against the backdrop of the context we have. And I should say, if you look at old news accounts in the newspapers of the day when Charles was dying, there were rather chilling accounts of the surgical community or representatives of it and members sort of hanging around and keeping an eye in his area so that once he dies, they can swoop in and try and procure the corpse, trying to bribe people and so forth. So these sort of gothic, almost macabre write-ups in the old newspapers of the day, I quote several in a grave situation if you'd like to go to the source. In terms of the medical value of a specimen like Burns' skeleton, medical researchers have taken DNA from his teeth and set out the DNA record, Burns' DNA record, for us. So burn has been of medical value in death, but given that we now have these full medical studies that we have people who will come forward under the principle of informed consent with the same condition and so forth, there is no discernible medical value to the retention of Burns' skeleton. I should point out as well, it is possible to construct an exact replica of the skeleton and display that and provide a respectful burial to the remains. I don't think that's an appropriate course, but that is still possible if it comes to the the, the display issue. So we, we draw a line around those sorts of parameters. And what follows from that, if we don't have further medical value, is again, this momentum towards the correct outcome, which is to respect the man that was his memory and to arrange a respectful burial of those remains. So your campaign continues. Yes, indeed. It's been very positive that the Hunterian Museum have announced that when they reopen in March of this year, it will be with the remains of Charles Byrne withdrawn from display. Campaigners, myself and others, are hoping that the trustees will now take the next step, which would be to organise a respectful burial. There are a couple of schools of thought on which type of burial might be most appropriate. Since the whole reason the etra or purpose is to respect and carry out Burns' wishes, it seems obvious that one would undertake a sea burial, a respectful sea burial, because that's what he asked for. Although if you take a purposive approach where you look at the purpose of his wishes, we know they were to evade the resurrectionists, these body snatchers that might take the remains up. 
and the surgical community purchasing the remains on a black market. Now, we don't need to worry about those problems in current day. So it could be that if you look at the broader purpose, which was to secure a safe, respectful burial, you could argue that perhaps a more conventional burial might be suitable. There is, well, there was a very interesting site in Charlestownland called the Giant's Grave. And it was said that Charles had lain down there when he was young and he was growing and growing. He'd lain down and had his outline dug around um, to measure the height, probably for a bit of fun with his pals in the local area. And that site was maintained as part of a local uh, site of interest. And when I first went out to where Charles had lived, it's a town called Dremullen in present day, but it was called Little Bridge back then. I met a lot of older members from the community that used to go to that site, which was known colloquially as the Giant's Grave, um, after Charles. And you would learn about Burn when you were a young kid there and play at the grave, the grave in inverted commas site. And it was said that this was where he would like to be buried. So I think there's a good case for a respectful burial on land at or as close as possible um, to that site. There is a National Trust site called Spring Hill House, which is a Downton Abbey type stately home in the area that was there in Charles' time. Charles used to hang out there a bit. They would invite him to dinners and things to dazzle people with his height and his kind of wit and all of that. Uh, so I think I hear soundings that the National Trust would be amenable to a burial in those grounds and a respectful you know, plaque perhaps or little memorial. So that would be an option. Just briefly, the giant's grave is not there anymore. It was dug up by a farmer who took over the land for grazing, dug up about 30 to 40 years ago. But I did uh, get a visit to the site from some locals who used to play there as children um, when they were young. So that would be perhaps another suitable option for a respectful burial. Neil, I'm, I'm going to draw you in here because um, while not quite in the same arena, it's certainly related in many ways. The university has been involved in a number of repatriations over the past 20 years, including the very high profile return of a Benin bronze in 2021. What are the bronzes and how did the university come to have one in its collection in the first place? The Benin bronze that the university returned was one that had been looted by a, a British force in 1897 from Benin City, from the, the Royal Palace of the Oba of, of Benin. They were records of the history of uh, the Kingdom of Benin. Uh, they were on altars, they were sacred, they were incredibly important. The university bought it at auction. So in some ways, the um, the university's legal title was based on that purchase. So we were thinking more about the the ethics and the morality of how it was originally acquired, that the, there wasn't a straightforward edict on the university and what to do, but we did want to think what is the right thing to do today. And given the circumstances were so clearly looting, the university decided it should be returned and it it is now back in the in the court of the Oba in Benin City. So clearly a culturally significant um, item. Was returning it a simple process? It's, in some ways, I mean, it's, it's not simple in as much as it took about 125 years for it to get back again. And it's something that is in the news a lot today. For the university, I think we, we have a procedure. It has a sort of step-by-step -step approach. We have various criteria. We try to have it in a consensual way so that the people who are making the, the proposal, they're also part of the discussion. So we think about the history of it. We think about um, the significance to the university and the significance to 
you know, whoever we're thinking of returning to, we think about issues um, a bit like the ones you've just been hearing about, about making a replica and display and research and so on. So it's not simple in as much as it's not just to saying yes, no, it's something you want to think through really carefully. I think it's very important that we do think through carefully because if items are of that importance, they deserve to be taken seriously. And so that's what that uh, procedure does. Um, it's based on the idea of the university having either legal title, hence being able to return, or in the case of human remains, having certain rights of possession that again mean that we're the appropriate organisation to make that decision. But I'm much happier, and so far it has always happened, that it's been a consensual discussion, that it's not actually been an either-or. It's something we've worked through together. Yeah, so uh, Aberdeen obviously isn't the only university or institution looking at this. Um, For Mm. many countries, not just the UK, there's long and often challenging histories to contend with, and there's an obligation to address the legacies of slavery and empire and in, I guess, the, in inverted commas, ownership of historic collections that we care for. The return of the Benin Bronze by the university has been followed by similar moves by other institutions. Why do you think this is something that's gaining traction now, and what does it mean for museums and the role that they play in knowledge sharing and education? I think there are many things all have come together that there's been a a long-term shift in what museums think they're for from being simply sort of treasure houses where the museums keep things and they're primarily for scholars to thinking much more about um, them being for the public, that it's the the public good, and thinking therefore about all the different reasons that people might want to visit, might want to engage with collections. So there's been a lot of work over the past couple of generations trying to understand how people and objects and uh, and human remains relate and understanding some of the emotional power as well as just a scholarly value. So that's been a long-term change. I think uh, in parallel with that, museums have been looked at quite critically from outside and particularly from Indigenous people in North America and Australia and New Zealand where human remains were were you know, stolen often for display you know, and for study as racial types. So there was a very overt racist background to the creation of collections and sometimes human remains were acquired along with cultural material in dreadful ways. And that's been critiqued and there's been a move to have uh, ancestors reburied, to have sacred items returned. And then more recently, we've seen, particularly following the murder of George Floyd, um, a greater focus on the the rest of the world and how it's been colonised by European powers. And so thinking about that relationship as well. So it's been a number of things to have come together. It's not just at museums. A lot of this is coming from within museums. And I think the you know most people working in museums are, are now very comfortable taking part in these debates and these discussions and thinking very openly about what do we do with all these legacies it's not simple and there are lots of different viewpoints so how do you navigate through that thomas from your experience with um the charles burn case where does the law come into this and is that also changing as they're going to be you know something different coming down the line given how the landscape for museums is changing and these conversations are taking place yeah the law's role is very interesting in this if you look at the charles burn case narrowly you tend to find that, say, for example, if you're a campaigner and you would like to compel the release of the remains, there don't seem to be any credible legal avenues, at least that I can detect and some other colleagues that would allow you to do that. So in terms of the law, as it relates to burn directly, 
the trustees of the Ontarian Museum, they do have legitimate custody of the remains and they can decide to divest themselves of the remains or otherwise. But rather than looking for a legal solution here, it seems clear that we're looking for a moral solution. So we're making a moral case rather than a legal one. Neil, you also sit on the Ethics Committee of the Museums Association. How do you approach cases like this from an ethics perspective? The Museums Association has a a code of ethics that um, we we all work with, um, and it considers areas like caring for the collection, working with people, and forms of institutional governance. Um, At an international level, the International Council of Museums also has a code of ethics, and they're consistent. So often it's uh, museums operate the code of ethics themselves. Rarely do cases come to the Ethics Committee for consideration. But I think what's really important when we're trying to think ethically is understanding that there are different viewpoints. And so a good ethical discussion is often one where you bring different viewpoints. And that's really a powerful case when you're thinking about some of the items in collections where we may think of it as an object, as property, whereas to somebody else, this may be a sacred item, and it's a very different way of thinking about it. And then whether you're thinking of people who have a scientific interest in in seeing something or uh, an approach that some of us might not be comfortable with, but nonetheless, they still have that. We might call it a morbid fascination, but I think we've got to accept that some people have that view. So trying to have a discussion that looks at all the different uh, possibilities and aims not necessarily for what is absolutely the right thing to do. We probably can't do that, but is trying to have a discussion at least to what's the best thing we can do with all the evidence we have. So that's where the the university's approach to certainly to repatriation takes that sort of approach that with the Ben and Bronze, the suggestion came from within the university from ourselves that this is something we felt was wrong for us to have. And we then led to having a discussion with people in Nigeria about who were the right people to take custody of it now. So that richness of an ethical discussion, I think, is really important. I say it gives that respect to what we're talking about as well. Um, it means we can also we can be responsive, we can be proactive. It's it's open. And what about when it comes to Barnes specifically? Thinking about ethical guidance, there's one particular code that's useful. This was the World Archaeological Congress's Vermilion Accord. And it's interesting the way that it structures a a conversation. So it, it says that you should have respect for the mortal remains of the dead, which is a very general statement. Um, it then specifically says respect for the wishes of the dead, you know, where you know them or where they can be inferred should, you know, whatever possible be, be followed. Then there's respect for the wishes of the local community and respect for the scientific research value. And I think that quite nicely shows those different, sometimes competing, sometimes not, approaches that need to be balanced and need to be thought about. But I do think in this particular case, it's quite striking that it, you know this um, Burns' wishes were very clearly stated and are known. So that in an ethical discussion that used that framework, I think the outcome was very clear. Just to underscore a comment Neil was making about human bodies and artifacts and how they can differ in terms of legal perception. We're used to distinguishing between property and people. So in the case of Burns remains, we would tend to see those remains as being in the custody or possession of the Hunterian trustees. We're less inclined to think of ownership because we're dealing with the remains of an actual 
person or human being. Technically, in law, they can actually be subject to limited ownership entitlements. But but generally, and as Neil points to, we have this division between people and things. And part of that goes to the respect that we accord the deceased and human remains, which is a very special kind of respect based on our shared humanity. Well, I come. I'm sorry to say it because this is a fascinating subject. I, for one, could keep talking about it for hours, but I'm afraid we've run out of time. Thank you both for being part of this discussion. It's been dark, <laughs> but great. <laughs> and thanks also to our listeners. I hope you've enjoyed today's look into the headlines. I'll be back to explore more tales from the University of Aberdeen with you very soon. But if you just can't wait, please do visit ABDN ac.uk slash news and you'll find all the latest stories and announcements. This podcast was brought to you by the University of Aberdeen.